Welcome to Cambridge Challenges. I'm Katie Thornborough and I'm standing in for Lewis Herbert, who ran the first one of three programmes on local planning. This one, the second one, is about demystifying the planning process and we are going to be discussing how are contentious larger planning applications decided and more important, how can you as a resident have your say, particularly as an affected local resident. I'm joined here by Sam and Simon. Hi, I'm Sam Davis. I'm the Independent City Councillor for Queen Edith's Ward in the south of the city. Hi, I'm Simon Payne. I'm a town planner. I'm previously, I was Director of Planning at Cambridge for 11 years. And I've got 48 years' experience in town planning. I'm rather reluctant to admit. And I am Councillor Katie Thornborough. I have been an architect in Cambridge for 35 years and I'm currently the Executive Councillor for Planning. But I am here to explain and discuss the perspective of a councillor in this discussion. Well, the first of the series was about how the planning system worked and, there were, and discussing problems um, on engaging the public. There will be a third programme in about a month's time on have we got right the local plan for Cambridge. But we will start this programme now. We're going to briefly go through the planning hierarchy, which means that the top level of the planning framework is the National Planning Policy Forum. That's a national document. We also have a local adopted Cambridge plan, which has planning policies that schemes need to comply with. And it also includes adopted sites where buildings might be built for businesses or for homes. So within the local plan, there are some identified sites. We also want to consider what are material considerations and what might not be material considerations in when you engage with planners and consider planning applications. We also need to consider about balancing principles. What issues are there that might carry weight for an application to help it succeed or what we might want to argue against an application to stop it proceeding. There are also several changes to the planning system that are happening at a national level. There is the levelling up and regeneration bill and there's planning reforms which are being considered. So it's quite complicated but we're going to try and explain to you from our perspective and how you might get more engaged and better understand the whole process. I'm going to reflect on the councillor view, Sam is going to reflect on the resident's view and Simon is going to reflect on the planner's view. So, Simon. Great, uh, mm. thank you very much in, indeed. So, yes, I'm just going to re-talk a little bit about the planning application process um, and I ask Katie and Sam to kick me if I start lapsing into jargon because uh, it's really this is quite a complex area and uh, it's really important just to say it in a, a, a straightforward way. A lot of what you need to know is covered in the planning portal, which is a really useful online Can I Just document. put my red flag up here. Okay. Planning portal. That's mm -hmm. that's the first bit of jargon. Oh, You've no. fallen at the first oh, hurdle, dear. Simon. Oh, I haven't made it. Okay. So um, there is um, there's, there's a lot of online uh, resources which, uh, which are really helpful, and it's important to be able to tap into those. 
The whole process is very much um, a plan-led, which means that this is around uh, the policy being set, either through the adopted local plan. There are some also some particular detail plans for different parts of the Cambridge city, for instance, but also through, um, as Katie has said, the national planning policy framework, um, which really sets out what uh, the council must follow or take into account when making decisions. The local plan, I think, is is really fundamental, and, and that's, again, online and can be referred to, and I think is a really important resource. And that plan will show um, which sites have been allocated for development. And so if we're talking about, for instance, a housing site, and that's been through the local plan process, which involves uh, extensive public consultation and a whole range of uh, engagement. But if that site is then allocated for, let's say, housing development, in a, that means that that um, housing proposal in principle is uh, is agreed. And it's then a question of what type of housing uh, should be on that site. How should it be designed? So I think, you know, the local plan, I think, is a really, really important part of this. In considering a planning application, then the council needs to consult. And there's a whole range of different organisations which uh, the council will consult with. And that will include, for instance, uh, people who supply water, uh, drainage. It can involve the conservation issues, uh, a whole range of different uh, transport. And then the other absolute fundamental thing, and, and Sam, I think, will, will really uh, emphasize this, but it's really how we consult the public. Um, and that is, of course, residents, but it's also thinking about other people who might have an interest in development. So businesses, for example, might be part of that. So the planning process is all around gathering this evidence and then uh, and, and then thinking about that against the local plan and these policy uh, frameworks. But this is a really important point. This is not a checklist approach. No, this is absolutely not. You know, there, there have been some commentators who say, well, the planning process, you know, you just tick these boxes and then you get your, your answer for, for approval or whatever. That is not about what it is about. And so much about good planning and good placemaking is not about just the lowest common denominator. It is about trying to strive for excellence, going that step further and how we can do that. Uh, and a very good example of that is around design. And, you know, a lot of emphasis now is being given to beauty, for instance. And there are changes to national policy which are strengthening the emphasis about designing places that are beautiful, for example. Now, that's a bit of a subjective uh, area. And when the council is making decisions, it needs to, again, think about the character of the place. And it needs to think about what good design is. Because, you know, one person's dreaded carbuncle might be someone else's stunning masterpiece. And there's a subjective element to that which needs to be thought about. Finally, just to mention a couple of other things, um, and that's developers. You know, the developers are the people who are coming forward with proposals. They're investing a lot of money and time into the proposals. And how are they thinking? How, how do they approach this? 
Well, generally speaking, uh, developers have done their homework. You know, that's really important to recognize that. And they will be thinking through the issues which are important. They will be anticipating uh, what the response from the public and the consultees might be. The developer might own the land outright, or it may have an option on the land, which is then exercised if uh, permission is granted. But I think one really good piece of a good practice is to get the developers as early as possible to talk to the council and to talk to residents, to talk to everyone who is interested in this, really striving for not just good enough, but for excellence. I think that's a really important uh, objective in this process. So that's my sort of take as a planner. Well, yes, that is, uh, that's really interesting and it's really well set out. But Sam, how does it feel as a well-informed resident, I must add, um, <laughs> to, but also one who's actually engaged with many residents on planning? How do you feel about this process that's been outlined? I think residents who've taken an interest in planning over the years would listen to what Simon's just described, acknowledge the theoretical correctness of it and wonder how on earth their lived experience is in any way uh, related to, to what he's just described. My conversations with residents consistently indicate that they find planning one of the most frustrating, unresponsive and really upsetting set of interactions that they have with any form of local government. Part of it, we've already touched on it, part of it is that it's a very technical and regulated activity. And so there are, you know, legally prescribed do's and don'ts that tie everybody's hands. There are also these immense obstacles in terms of the terminology that is used in this area. So, you know, adopted sites, even the local plan, the three of us sitting here have all taken it absolutely as read that everybody knows what a local plan is. So, I don't know, Katie, do you want to explain what the local yes. plan is, when we last, quotes, it, adopted one in Cambridge, where we're going with it, the, the, yes. this fundamental building block, and yet people don't know what it covers and what it doesn't. It is, I think it is one of the most important documents we have in the council, and it is the least known of the documents. Yes, the local plan the current local plan was adopted in 2018. It has a vision for the city, but it, at, going back even further, it was it was began to be drafted back in 2014 or even earlier. So it took many years of looking at vision, looking at the the need for homes and the need for business space. But it also looked about how. Um, what are the priorities for creating some really successful spaces for people? And it has a set of policies that anybody who wants to bring forward an application should consider all the policies. But as Simon was said, that there are identified sites. So when, the, when it was all in draft form, this was examined. Uh, there was evidence supporting the sites and the policies. And there was a lot of consultation 
and it was a very long process before it was went it was finalized and then it went to the government's planning inspector and it came back several times before it was finally approved so we're actually in the process of forming a new local plan because they need to be kept up to date so ideally every 5 years we would have a new local plan but it takes a, quite a lot of time so we're in, so we're in the process of saying do we need new policies where do we need housing considering what has been built recently and where do we where might we provide space for offices but along with the the buildings there is very important to put infrastructure in place so that is it that's roads and power and water and drainage but it's also other aspects to do with health and education as well so ours was adopted in 2018 and we do refer to it a lot so sam how do residents refer to it in my experience what residents do is when a an application comes up that they have concerns about if they are aware of the existence of the local plan they will go to it and they will look for policies where they feel the application is not in conformity with it and then they will try and build a case around it so there is uh, as i said a kind of regulated process and residents will try to engage with that regulated process the problem is there's a massive asymmetry in terms of a knowledge because obviously you know developers are professionals in this and can retain other professionals if they want to make a case for why a particular feature should be included or shouldn't be included they will hire a consultant who can make the case for them residents are doing this flying blind on their own time with perhaps a need to start from scratch and one of the things that frustrates me and really i think is is a criminal failure is that all of these individuals and communities who have problems with an application all start from a position of very little knowledge and have to build their expertise and one of the things i would love to see is a kind of planning aid support for residents where there would be a way of sharing information and learning from how previous applications have been handled because developers can go and talk to planning officers and have these things called pre-application discussions yes they pay for them but planning officers are in, in effect coaching developers as to what changes they need to make to make their application acceptable residents do not get that same access to expertise and they either have to try and master it themselves or they have to fundraise and crowdsource funding in order to buy in that expertise so one of the things i feel very strongly about is this asymmetry and i can see that simon wants to come yes, back yes i do i do sam i'm just really um keen to point out that the planner's role here is to present information to the council in a way that is fair and transparent and leads to the best possible decision and that is to make sure that uh, it includes the need that residents can make an informed 
comment about the application and the proposals. So I wouldn't want to portray this as an adversarial thing with, with the planners and the developers on one side you know, and the residents and the elected members on the other. That is absolutely not right. Um, the role of a good planner is to be able to uh, ensure that the best possible uh, decisions are being made. And on the pre-application side, the best practice, as I have said, is for uh, for the, all of the people who are involved in the process to be in that discussion. There may be occasions when that's not possible because of some commercial confidential information, but that shouldn't be the normal at norm at all. Uh, it's really important that planners can orchestrate a proper debate, an informed debate, and uh, the outcome of that should be a better quality scheme, or it could be no scheme at all. You know, so I think that's the planner's role. It's not right to say, well, the planners are always going to be on the side of of the developers or want. Great Growth. They want to get a, the best outcome for the place. And I think it's quite reasonable and proper that, uh, that officers should be aspiring, as, as members should be, to excellence. You know, this is really important, I think. That's where we need to make sure the planning process delivers a better outcome. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on individual officers. I'm trying to point out that there is a structural imbalance and an imbalance in terms of resources that different parties can bring to bear. One of the examples from my own ward was a block of flats where the freeholder decided that they wanted to stick an extra floor of flats on top against the wishes of the leaseholders, didn't talk to the leaseholders. And it was going to lead to a very substandard accommodation both for the existing residents and and their quality of life and for the occupants of these proposed new flats. The residents had to take on the services of their own planning consultant in order to put together the, the case to oppose this. Now in that example that was very effective because it was a relatively small number of leaseholders they worked pretty cohesively together and frankly they were well enough off to be able to afford to mount that defence. Officers interestingly recommended approval of that application, I believe. In another context, there may not have been the same cohesive group amongst the residents or they may not have been able to afford to retain professional advisors now i don't i you know this is this is kind of drifting off the thing we said we were going to talk about but i think when we talk about you know the transparency and the neutrality of the planning process it's important not to exaggerate how far those can be effective despite everybody's best efforts I do think that one of the issues that the I as a councillor find in um, trying to engage with the planners and with residents is actually quite a lot of the national changes. So there's been a change um, f so that the business use class of commercial buildings, um, business class, it's, it's really broad so that if you occupy a commercial building, you can actually change what previously you would have had to ask for permission, it's much broader now. So, And it's, it's difficult keeping up to date sometimes with all of the, the changes that the government have put in. 
it's sometimes uh, for councillors trying to keep up to date with what is now allowed for example and the example you gave was there is a permitted development now to build on top of a you, you can of a building and as you've suggested and it's there's something called you know prior approval applications which probably is, we need to discuss later but, but councillors have a, a role to help residents um, link residents opinion and make sure that they are heard with the planning officers and early engagement is of with residents and making sure they know about planning applications which is maybe the first hurdle is everybody aware about this and how it is what's there is a a consult a document a statement that we have in the council about how consultation should be carried out that's about to be reviewed and one of the things is the input from residents and councillors about the whole consultation process. How can that be made better, particularly with the new ways of communicating that we've got now? But Simon, you wanted to come in on something. Yes, I mean, just following those thoughts, really. And and probably it's, at this point, it's quite useful just to reflect on how planners think. <laughs> Um, yes, yes, and I, I assure you, Sam, that planners do think, <laughs> um, and that is that we're uh, that planners we're working within uh, a number of constraints. Uh, Katie has already mentioned the issue around this permitted development that there are certain things which uh, can be built without the need for planning permission. And the other thing which we need to bear in mind that if the uh, if a decision is made and then that goes to appeal, so there is a right. It's a bit unfair. I mean, this is the uh, uh, asymmetrical argument that Sam is putting. But there's no right of appeal by a resident against an approval of permission, but there is a right of appeal uh, by uh, a developer, for instance, if they get a refusal. And uh, that means then that the decision is examined not by the council, but it's, it's decided by an independent inspector. And if the council has unreasonably uh, refused permission, not only can the inspector allow the proposal to go ahead, but also the council can be fined. And in extreme cases, this is hundreds of thousands of pounds. So when a planner is providing advice to an elected member, uh, the advice will include that consideration that we are not completely in charge of our destiny here. We have to work within these rules. But, you know, the planner has to come forward with a recommendation. You know, you can't say, well, how do you, what do you think, you know, Sam? You know, do you feel this is good enough or not? We have to make a recommendation. And that's a quite a binary uh, decision to make. Um, so that's not an easy th judgment there. And in making that decision, one can also include um, conditions, requirements on the development to make it more acceptable. It might otherwise be refused. But those conditions need to be they're capable of being enforced and precise and reasonable because they can be challenged too through that process. So the planners, when they, you know, I, I'm putting the case here, it's a very difficult job being a planner because we have to weigh up all of these considerations and give the advice that we think is the best advice. The other thing to say, and this may be a bit more controversial, but the planners are not only thinking about the people in the room who are making the comments. And one of the drawbacks that uh, happens in the planning system is there's a generational divide 
between those people who engage in the in the discussion and those people who do not and and that is made more difficult when one considers the high cost of housing you know particularly in our area and the the, the really strong need for affordable housing you know for that for the younger generation so how is one balancing up the needs of those people who may not be involved in the discussion but have equally well got um, the uh, that their needs need to be taken into account. So then that I then pass that over to the elected members, to yeah. Sam uh, and to Katie, and say, well, okay, you, the planner here has done uh, their very best to yes. provide that balanced argument and to say what's possible within the rules. But now it's over to you guys to balance that up with with uh, that other, those other so- considerations. In the highest level document, the National Planning Policy Framework, there is a need for consultation. And I think one of the problems, and I I think Sam will back me up on this, consultation is sometimes comes across as here is a scheme, we're going to tell you about it, and we're going, that's consultation, and there's a tick box. And I think there really need, real consultation should be engaging with existing residents who are adjacent to the site about maybe even how to put the brief together. So it would mean starting consultation and engagement much earlier on and bringing on in residents and communities. And I think the area in south of Cambridge, there are lots of lessons we could learn from consultations in the past, but... Do you think, Sam, there would be a new way to engage and consult for what might be coming in the future? So I think Cambridge suffers from two problems which really kind of unhelpfully reinforce each other. So one is the pace of change and the scale of change that's going on. And I I keep talking about the fact that, you know, in in my older son's 20-year lifetime, the population of the city has gone up from 100,000 to 140,000. It's huge, huge growth in a very short time frame. So I think people genuinely struggle to keep up, even if consultation were offered with the best will in the world. How much can you expect an ordinary member of the public to engage? And I think that is possibly the explanation for the point you were making, Simon, which is it tends to be older people. Uh, the, the, the famous quote from a county transport officer about over-educated retired people with time on their hands. I think that's what you were kind of saying, weren't you? But secondly, Cambridge has this very transient population. The population of the city churns by 20% every year. And so... How do you, can you persuade those people who are not going to be here necessarily for the long term that it's even worth their getting engaged? And I think those two things together really do present us with quite a difficult landscape to then start having these conversations. And I also think it ties into all sorts of issues about appropriate governance structures for the area and who has what powers. Again, we've talked about how planning has a relationship with the transport or the the highways infrastructure. But as we are all increasingly painfully aware, the city council does planning and the county council does highways. 
This is Cambridge Challenges and one of three programmes about the planning system. And I'm here with Sam Davies and Simon Payne discussing how residents might engage with the planning system and in particular larger applications and how residents might ensure that their voices are heard. Welcome, if you've just joined us. We are now talking about how residents might engage and actually be heard. And it, um, Sam's making the point about the, the number of, peop- of younger people who move through Cambridge, I think mainly the student population, and therefore the, it may be generally the older people who have the time to be involved in consultations. And we really want everyone to be involved, don't we, Sam? Yeah, we, we absolutely do, because for me it's, it's part of the whole kind of legitimacy of what's going on in the city and people feeling that this is uh, an environment that they actually, you know, belong to and and can influence. And that's hugely important, I think. I know that digital, everybody gets very excited about digital and and suggests that that is a, a way of increasing rates of engagement, particularly with younger people. And in the work that we've done in the last couple of years about these early stages of this next local plan process there has been I think a much greater reliance on on digital that's great for the people it works for but I do think there's always going to be a portion of the population who feel more comfortable referring to what they would identify as documents but that has a cost it's much easier for the council to promote digital routes of engagement and certainly much cheaper than it is to to send planning members of the planning team out to do events uh, in people's backyard, which is actually what I think you'd want to be doing. If you want to capture people's imagination, you need people talking to people. But as we all know, local government is increasingly cash-strapped, and so I suspect there's going to be a tension between what we'd like to do and the mix of methods we'd like to do going forwards and what's actually going to be driven by financial imperatives. Financial imperatives, Simon. Oh, yes. Um, this is um, a huge issue. And, and we have planning services across the country who are struggling um, with the resourcing constraints to make sure that um, the planning services are, are resourced to do what is required. Um, but I think that we've got a system which has grown sort of step by step, you know, and so it's become more and more complicated over time. Uh, and this is also a problem. So let's. So I think a fundamental here is that people have got confidence that they can actually influence decision making. So uh, at the outset, I, I mentioned the issue about how when the local plan is prepared, then a decision is made about which sites would come forward for housing, for instance. And once that's in the local plan, you know, it becomes, as we call it, as a piece of jargon, Sam is going to kick me again, it's a, a site which has been allocated, then that decision has been made. And so, you, you know, people could feel disenfranchised by that, especially as on average in the UK at the moment, in, in England, it takes seven years to produce a local plan. 
there's a real problem about uh, the length of time that these things take to, 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 to happen. Uh, we've got the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, which is currently, I think, with the House of Lords at the moment, uh, and their promises to try and uh, to, to change the system to, to certainly speed up local plan preparation. But it doesn't help anybody if it takes so long to produce a policy which is then going to influence in a very fundamental way decisions made about planning applications. So in a way, we collectively as, as planners and as elected members have got one arm tied behind our back in this process. And hopefully uh, that may become a bit easier in time. But I think it's one reason why uh, there is a lack of uh, confidence in the planning system as it stands at the moment. So Sam, are you going to come back on these allocated sites? Well, I was, I was going to hope Simon could explain how it is that the old Swiss laundry site on Cherry Hinton Road, which, and, and you don't have to answer in terms of the specific, specifics of this site, but just in general. So in the 2018 local plan, that's allocated for 33 houses. And somehow, miraculously, we're getting offices and lab space and other things. And so, so you talk about people having confidence and trusting the process I think I followed the local plan process pretty carefully last time. That change of use took me by surprise. How how could that happen and how could someone follow that through? I'm not familiar with that particular site, but there would have to be a good planning argument to say why that uh, change was being supported. Um, and uh, one would need to look and understand that. You know, my key message here is please engage you know, that um, the, 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 the officials, the planners and the elected members, we all want people to engage in this debate, both through the local plan and through the planning application process. And, uh, and it's important then, for instance, if we've got that site and the planning application comes forward, to examine the arguments that are being put forward in the committee report that is considered by the, mem by the members, look at the evidence that's supporting the proposal and the recommendation and challenge that if you want to. But please do not be put off from engaging because it's a, that's the way in which we get the best decisions to be made within the rules within which we have to work. I think from talking to residents that obviously if they suddenly find something is you know, happening on a site adjacent to them, it can be a very emotional thing. It, you know, it can be very destabilising because this place that they know that they've put down roots and so on is suddenly threatened, potentially. And they are asked to suppress that kind of emotional response and just respond on a purely rational thing. And this is where, and Katie, you must have seen this as well, there's this kind of tension between what are called material considerations, which are the grounds that the planning process accepts for objecting to an application or asking for modifications to an application, and some kind of notion of natural justice. We've been talking about the local plan and allocated sites. So there is actually a map identifying all of these sites. But what also happens is uh, windfall sites come through. So somebody may sell a house in, within quite a large ground and uh, somebody may buy and decide they want to build some flats. 
And that may upset residents more because it's completely unexpected. It's not in the local plan. Or there are household applications where people might do an extension or a studio in a garden. They're smaller applications, but they may affect the people around them more directly even than a larger site on the, the edge of Cambridge. So these are smaller applications. They could come to committee or be dealt with by the officers. And people understanding that, that this might happen through choice of the owners of the site or through somebody just wanting to do an extension or adaption, that's part of the planning process. But I do agree, Sam, that the whole understanding about being able to change your space, which can be very important for people to when things are not good enough to make them better. But also there happens to be many more extensions and alterations in, in this area because the land prices are so expensive. So people are staying put and wanting have more, maybe their family's been expanded or maybe their parents are coming to live with them. So they want more space. So they, under permitted development, they or beyond permitted development, they want to expand their buildings. And that can cause a problem, as you've pointed out, because it's completely unexpected. So shall we ask Simon now to give us chapter and verse on what material planning considerations are? Um, well, I can certainly do that, but I think it'd probably take me an hour to go through every every angle. It may be easier to say what are not planning considerations. For instance, property value. So if you are concerned that a scheme is coming forward and it's going to devalue your your house, that's not a ground because the planning system isn't designed to protect people's property value. Or a view. If you happen to have a lovely view for miles and then there's something going to be put in the way of that view, and then that's not a consideration. But what is a consideration is, for instance, around transport impacts transport safety and the movement of the ability to, to move around. The um, nature conservation, for instance, there's, uh, I'm going to risk being kicked again by Sam, but I think it's worth it. And that's a biodiversity net gain, which in, in plain English is when a development takes place, and, and you may feel this is counterintuitive, but when a development takes place, then when it's complete, there should be more biodiversity, more nature as a consequence of what has happened than there was before. So there's a, range, a whole range. We could go on forever about this list. Uh, the other point I think was I was really interested by Sam's comment around the emotional engagement because I understand, you know, like everyone else, there's, there are places which are special to me uh, and I have an emotional reaction when I hear about change. Uh, this is going to be a change to something that uh, that uh, that I've remember, but that change itself is not a grounds for uh, objecting to a proposal. Um, you know, we're we're not trying to um, uh, put everything in aspect here. Um, it's a question of whether that change is better or not. And I suppose my question for Sam, let me get my own back here, <laughs> is: Does she accept that change can be for the better in relation to the built environment? Oh, absolutely, in principle. The question is, is that what we get? And and also, I mean, better is a pretty loaded term. Better for whom? Better for what? I think there's probably an hour's worth of discussion just interrogating that one. But yes, of course, in principle, things can be better. I think if I look at my own ward, the, the, the example of 
the house on the big corner plot, which gets knocked down and turns in, turned into 14 flats. Um, and Katie will know exactly the case I'm talking about. There's definitely an argument that's better because you've taken one family home and you've now created accommodation for 14 households. So in a city where there's such pressure on housing, that that is a form of better. The cost of that was that several mature trees with TPOs on got taken down and a building which was not listed but certainly notable in its local context has gone. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, of course I agree the principle that development can be better. I, but but it, it's also not just about my view, is it? It's about the views of people in the city. And, and I think sometimes better is equated purely with economic factors. And there are other dimensions to it. And we talked about levelling up bill and where that's sort of influencing things. You know, one of the missions that's supposed to derive from the whole levelling up exercise, if you believe a word of it, is pride in place. And I think it's, it's harder to give people pride in place when things that they value about their existing environment are changing and I don't know how we square that circle again because things are changing so damn fast in Cambridge. Some people might say um, you know Cambridge is very unique and uh, we maybe should be grateful that that we have an opportunity to have buildings built uh, if they're to a a certain standard and there is clear benefit for us. The, the planning regulations and rules apply to the whole country, well, England and Wales. So it, some of the rules might actually be much more appropriate in, in um, areas where they're crying out for investment, where people want businesses and homes to provide jobs and more space for people to live. So we, we're dealing with that as well as what just comes forward. So one example, you, you gave one example, Sam, where... One home then uh, was demolished for several flats. And then there was another site where homes were to be provided, but they didn't provide the homes. They provided spaces for offices. So there, there can be quite a lot of change. And the, it's, the developers, have they have some reasons to um, come forward with their ideas for a site. But the, it would be the very specific local impacts is I think what you're really concerned about, aren't you? And I think cumulative impact. And I'm not sure that the planning regime can give enough weight to cumulative impact. I I think that's, that's a real problem because if I understand it correctly, you know, applications are looked at on their individual merits and it's harder to capture this thing about changes to local character, for example, that come through successive applications in the same place. I mean, I think 
part of the local plan is to, uh, the, the, when you're looking at the whole of the city, for example, let's say the whole of the city, uh, then that's an opportunity to think about the cumulative impacts of all the developments, you know, with Eddington and uh, and Great Nineton and all, all everything together. And what does that mean in terms of the way the transport works, for instance, or doesn't work? What does that mean in terms of uh, the balance between the built environment and the green environment, you know, and the, the, the public spaces? So there's an opportunity. But I think, yeah, I think that a planner is a good planner when there's providing advice to a committee will be, should be thinking about cumulative impact too. Part of this is to say, well, as a resident, for example, you know, how can I help influence and get the right outcome here? Well, I think it's really important that residents help the planners and the elected members understand what is special about their area in planning terms. The local knowledge is there, which, which we need to tap into. And not just to say this is a process of stopping change, but saying, well, let's think about this in terms of what we can make it even better, whether it's in terms of active modes for for transport, for instance, because we're not in a perfect world. And there are constraints. You know, public uh, services are very strapped for money. And if there is an opportunity for private investment, well, how can we direct that in a way which actually meets people's needs in a better way than what would otherwise happen? There is a risk in this process. It becomes a bit adversarial. You know, Simon, you're the planner. You're, you're making my life a misery. Actually, no, what the planners need to, are seeking to do is to work constructively helping the members make those right decisions. So I think that's what we should be aiming at. We're much more aware of the applications which are coming through rather than the applications which get turned down during the pro- the planning process. My, my understanding is that most of the applications are dealt with by the planners. They don't come to committee. 90% are dealt with by the planners, so they're either approved or rejected. Uh, the 10% might will come to committee with a recommendation for approval or refusal. So there are schemes coming through recommending refusal and the committee can agree that they should be refused or overturn that and say, well, actually, we think this should be approved. And I'm very aware of both situations. And there are, I, there, I would probably think maybe, uh, maybe, 10% of the applications coming to committee, maybe a bit more, are for refusal. Residents who, are, who come to the committee on a specific application who want to speak, I think generally they do see that there is a very good debate on, on both sides. And Sam, you've come to committees to represent your residents. Um, how do you feel the actual committee process, committee event has been so the applications where I've spoken or observed I've been genuinely impressed by the quality of the discussion Um, I think people on that committee take their responsibility very seriously and I you know yeah thoroughly impressed with with what I've seen from a resident perspective again because that's that's the role I'm I'm advocating for here. I think it can be really problematic if a group of residents um, have objected to something and want to speak about it at committee. They get a total of three minutes. They may not know each other. 
They may not know who the other parties are who've also asked to speak. And there's this horrible kind of rearguard action to either divvy the three minutes up into 20 second portions so they can all have their say or find someone who can say the whole piece for them. So I think that bit of process is challenging from a resident's perspective. But honestly, I would encourage people, planning committee is is live streamed. I would encourage people to just watch it one day and see the way the debate works and and get themselves more informed about that part of the process. Yes, I think this is one when one way the ward councillor can help because the ward councillor can deal with the the policy issues that might the residents might want to raise so that the residents when they have their 3 minutes they can talk about think that the emotional impact passively or the you know the, the pros and cons that they're finding which are not actually policy but uh but maybe very important yet still to be considered yes mm. and and um councillors are afforded more time though the last year's chair of the committee did encourage us all to be brief and concise in our comments Yes, in person, if I can just comment on this as well. I mean, it's really important not only to come along and to, to uh, and to uh, to speak uh, if you wish to, but of course to get the comments in in the first place. Because by the time you get to committee, the officers made a recommendation, and it's much better to be able to inform that uh, that thinking before you know through the before the officer writes his uh, or her uh, report. So I think that's really important too. The other thing I'd like to say is that sometimes it seems as though um, you know the officer has had to make a recommendation, as I have said before. But the officer's uh, duty is not to make the try and persuade the councillors to follow that recommendation. The officer's duty is to make sure that the members have the right information before them to make the decision. And if it goes, uh, if, if that means it's going to be an overturn on the officer's recommendation, that's perfectly fine. The duty then on the officer is to help the members make sure that the uh, reasons for refusal are sound. If they are not sound, then there is the risk that the council will take the case to the appeal and the independent inspector, and the inspector will uh, go against the decision. So if you watch the, the, the live stream, um, when uh, the committee is deciding to may go a different way, there's usually an adjournment. And it's at that point where the officers will um, seek to put together the reasons for refusal, having heard the comments made by elected members, by, by the residents and others. And then that those reasons are coherently put to the committee when they make their decision. But it's very, very important that, that is a, there's a proper process for that because otherwise there's a risk that the, uh, the reason the, the, the refusal cannot be substantiated yeah. at appeal. I think it's important to say that the committee members are elected councillors. They represent um, all parties and they have uh, training every year. Um, to be kept up to date, well, well, to learn about the process, they may be new councillors who go straight onto the planning committee. They need to; they have a, a full day's training about planning policy and the committee. But the the train the planning policy training is open to all councillors, because 
some ward members, they may not be on planning committee, but they still need to um, work with residents to help find out about planning applications, to help explain it, to help um, residents to put in comments, but also to help residents who want to change their their buildings and and put in in applications. Ward councillors get asked about that as well, I would think, Sam. Uh, less so, I think, because in those circumstances, people have got obvious uh, routes to professional advisors. You know, you want to put an extension on your house, you go talk to an architect. Um, you wouldn't particularly come talk to your, your counsellor under those circumstances. I, I'm aware that we're moving towards the end of the show. Can I put in my wish list, th- my my three-point wish, wish list for uh, encouraging engagement? Yeah wish list Sam. Okay so the first thing we've already talked about is language and um, all three of us have probably failed on that front abysmally. Um, I think we just anyone who is active in this just assumes so much knowledge and it is really difficult to have to take it apart for people but we must practice that discipline. The second is just making people aware that there is, it's hidden, but there is a um, mechanism on the uh, planning portal, there we are, whereby people can sign up to get notifications over a specific geographical area because only very, very close neighbours will be told if there is a planning application going in on a site. This enables you to be in control of the area that you're interested in and check regularly to see what's there. So I'd really encourage people to do that. And the third thing is if you are stupid enough to actually go into the planning portal and start trying to look at documents to understand what's being proposed, uh, this is a plea to the planners actually the titles of documents on the planning portal, completely opaque. There's there's um, the Nine Wells applica- um, development site at the bottom of Babraham Road. I've had cause to go back into that, in even though it's all built now. There's, there's something I'm following up on. 227 files for that application. And most of them have completely unintelligible titles. I have to intervene here and defend the planners because <laughs> it is the planners did not uh, do not run the planning portal. It's it's a separate organisation, and the consultants who put the documents onto the planning portal can put extra information about the titles. It's the people loading the information. It's the applicants who can deal with the title problem well then i would encourage us to to hold their feet to the fire until they do it i think that the the planning portal is really important and one of the things i've been saying is we need the it's not good enough it's not good enough for the planners not good enough for residents it's probably not good enough for applicants so any suggestions about how to improve that we should as a city collect them and make sure that goes to at the developers of the planning portal so that they benefit and then we all benefit as well. Excellent. So I'm not sure if I've got three prepared um, points to make um, other than to reiterate I think what's important here uh, in my view is that 
to, to please for residents to get engaged in the process uh, and to share uh, knowledge uh, between different sites and, and uh, if there's a residence group for instance to be able to talk to the residence group talk to your ward member I think that's important too and to make sure that you're getting your comments in um, through the, the, the formal processes as well as the opportunity to come along to committee and hear the debate and to take part in it if, if you if you wish to I think that's vitally important that's the strength of our system you know there are lots of flaws in it but the strength of our system is there's an opportunity to engage and I would urge people to do that thank you very much Simon and Sam I would just want to pick up on the language point Sam you're absolutely spot on there I think Cambridge is multicultural um, with met people of many languages and, um, and different backgrounds. So maybe we need to, to kind of test a few of the applications with the different groups within the city and the different age groups. But definitely we, that is a high priority. It's been great talking to you. I hope if anybody has a, any suggestions or feedback that they will email Cambridge 105 Radio or at studio at cambridge105.co.uk. Watch out for the next session. I think Lewis Herbert will be back um, to do that. And uh, thank you very much. Cambridge Challenges was presented by Councillor Katie Thornborough. The guests were planning consultant Simon Payne and Queen Edith's councillor Sam Davis. The studio engineer was Rob Chipperfield. You can listen to the show again or catch up with other programmes in the series at cambridge105.co.uk.